This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code on being at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. When people would talk to me about, you're going to beat this, or you're going to slay cancer, or you're gonna, I, I would say, what I'm going to do, hopefully, is become more of who I'm, I was meant to be. And cancer has given me this huge, dramatic, turbulent opportunity to do that. Eve Ensler has helped women all over the world tell the stories of their lives through the stories of their bodies. Her play, The Vagina Monologues, has become a global force in the face of violence against women and girls. But she herself also had a violent childhood. And it turns out that she herself was like so many of us Western women, obsessed by our bodies and yet not inhabiting them, without even knowing we're not inhabiting them. Until she got cancer. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Eve Ensler is a playwright, performer, and social activist. All of her work and writing revolves in some way around complicated, redemptive female physicality. Her book, The Good Body, includes a funny, touching reflection on her post-40s stomach. The Vagina Monologues is also touching and funny in places and has taken Eve Ensler places she never thought she'd go. To help create a transitional healing refuge for women and girls in the Congo, for example, it's called the City of Joy. And her emotional tie to the Congo played a mysterious role in her journey with cancer, as she describes in her book, In the Body of the World. I spoke with Eve Ensler in 2013. I always start by asking whoever I'm speaking with about their religious, if there was a religious or spiritual background to their childhood. And I wonder how you think about that. And that can obviously be a, an intentional religious or spiritual background, or it can be the spiritual message that was coming into the fabric mm. of your childhood. I don't know, how do you think about that? Well, it's interesting because I, I had a very strange, in a way, religious background. I was brought up in a Jewish community with a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother, Non, but I was brought up to be not Jewish in a Jewish community. Right. So that was really fraught for me and also just strange, you know. And then um, I, was, I was brought up in the Unitarian Church, which I actually quite liked because it was an exposure to all ways of thinking and all religious thoughts. And the church was a very political church. I remember there were really great speakers who came, civil rights speakers and, um, you know, anti-Vietnam speakers. And so it was kind of, I got this idea somehow that religion and social activism go together. But I don't know that I would call that my spiritual life. It was, they were religious ideas, you know, and, and I think my spiritual life was so much more through, um, language and through, words and through um, the body. It was always Mm. through the body and it was through dancing and it was through, I was a dancer when I was younger. I was a ballerina for years. And that was a big part of it is just, it was finding my, the life, the spirit in my body, um, which was a very difficult thing because my body was so kind of um, muted. Right. So how old were you when you first started to collect women's stories, that whole project that led to the Vagina monologues. Well, you know, my friend told me, who, was, who I grew up with, um, that I used to do this at camp, that I would get all the girls to sit on the bed to tell me their stories. <laughs> so I think it began very, very young. And I was always obsessed with people's stories, always. And um, I, I remember actually in, in um, fifth grade, I, I formed this club of all the unpopular girls because I was seriously unpopular and I brought them all to my house and I, I made them all tell me their stories about how they, bad they felt about being unpopular. <laughs> and it, I, it was sort of like, I think I always longed to know what was going on inside people, just what the secrets were, because I also wanted to know if there was another thing, another way, another story, another example, another path that was possible. 
I think that, that must have been really therapeutic for the unpopular girls. It was. They, I mean, they were so lucky to be in school with you. But they, I tried to form a kind of rallying club, but, yeah. you know, unpopular girls are unpopular for a reason. We were all really thwarted socially. So the club didn't really happen because they weren't that interested. They just wanted to stop being unpopular and grow up and yeah. be something else. They didn't want to be... I, it's, I remember when I worked for years um, in a homeless shelter and I would try to rally the homeless well, women to, like, you know... Organized, and they were like, "But we don't want to be identified as homeless women. Like this is is, is a very um, fluid identity. This is not a permanent right, right. identity, you know." Is and I think the unpopular girls felt kind of the same way. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so, but how old were you when the vagina monologues project started? Well, the vagina monologues happened in my latish thirties, mm-hmm. um, but there were a lot of stories I was gathering before then. Okay. You know, I did a play about homeless women where I. Um, called Ladies, where I interviewed women for years in a homeless shelter and then put that together. And I um, I did a play about nuclear disarmament where I talked to women who were camping out in peace camps and I put their stories into a play. So I was already, you know, um, I think when you grow up in a family where you don't know really what's going on inside people, you know, I everyone was so untransparent and, and so unavailable and so dis so far away. Yeah. And I, I longed to know what people were thinking. It, it, I knew someplace my survival was there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it is a fascinating phenomenon that that play, that project, the Vagina Monologues, that it really set this movement in motion where women around the world found a new way into kind of claiming themselves and healing themselves and, and loving themselves and each other. Um, so one thing I, one thing that jumps out at me, and you actually talk about this at some place in your writing, that is, uh, this power of naming, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and that, you know, that's really, it runs all the way through sacred traditions. I don't think we talk about it very much in this culture, but just naming itself, speaking a word and using words intentionally as something that actually is generative, you know, creative, it brings things into being. It really does. I, you know, I used to joke about saying the word vagina, but it's like, if you say it enough, the whole world changes and, (laughs) and people change. And, um, and that's definitely been my experience over and over again with various words. But but also the other thing that came through is when you ask a woman to talk about her vagina, it's not, it's not also just not that part of her body, right? It's the whole package in terms of... And I remember years ago reading, like, inside the story of a great autobiography is the story of humanity. And I think that's what started to hit me when I started to first talk to women. How many secrets, how many occluded memories, right, how, many, right. how many parts of ourselves were stored there that we had never brought to the surface. And you've been, I mean, you've been so many places, you've been all over the world with this, but um, I, I would like to just kind of home in on this, the hold that the Congo has for you. It's also so striking because that's one of those places where the stories one hears through the news, which are the only stories one would ever hear, are so horrific. You know, it's one of the hardest places ever to identify with in that abstract way. But what did you say once, you know? I was a goner for the Congo. So would you just tell talk I a little bit about the particular the hold it has? Well, I think for me, you know, I think who knows what my life would have been like going to the Congo had I not been to so many other places before. You know, I think you get prepared for landings. You know, mm. you get prepared for the moment when someplace enters you. It's that great Rilke thing. The future enters into us in order Mm. to transform us long before it ever happens. And I think the Congo was coming towards me for a long time. Um, When I got invited to the Congo by Dr. Denis McGuege, who's this extraordinary surgeon and head of Pansy Hospital, you know, it was one of those things where I I just knew in my being, like I had to go there and I had to do whatever we could to support his efforts. I think when I got to the Congo and the place is so beautiful and in Bukavu, it's just, it, 
it is it is just there's a paradisal quality to it and a, a beauty in the land and a beauty in the lake and a beauty in the nature and the fertility and the lushness and simultaneously the poverty and the and the insecurity and the war and the lack of infrastructure and the chaos and the you know it, it is so um living in the center of the story you know right, it's right. it's the it is everything escalated to so it's completely revealed. Like there are no more, there's no more lies there. So there's no more secrets there. You're in it. And there, and there's something um, both very disturbing about it, but also very relieving because... It's kind of the opposite of that experience you described beforehand, growing up in yes, suburban America. Exactly. Where everything was below the surface. Nothing's in front of you. Nothing's transparent. Yeah. Right. Um, so in 2010, you are helping create something called the City of Joy, which also just... You know, that language again, against the backdrop that you just described, is very stunning. And you discover that you have a huge malignant tumor, right, yep. in your uterus. And you have these, you said cancer, you said that cancer landed in your body just as Congo had landed you in the body of the world. And there's something in your story, and I know you know this, which is... Um, so iconic for this great contradiction of, especially of modern women, I think, Western women maybe, how attent- on the one hand attentive to our bodies and obsessed by our bodies we can, we can be and yet not inhabit them and not even know that we're not inhabiting exactly. them. And for you, <laughs> this crusader going around the world with V-Day, to make that discovery is just, um, you know, it's remarkable. Well, you know, I think, I think everything's in stages and is incremental. I, I think my whole life, if I look at the body of literature and, and theater pieces I've written, I think it's been this huge um, journey and attempt to get back into my body. I mean, every play on some level. But I think right, the body was always in there. Was always. always. The body. I mean, yeah. if, you know, I look yeah. at the vagina monologues, <laughs> the good body. I mean, it's been a kind of obsession. And I really, it's really an interesting thing. I think... You think you're in your body, and then you get cancer, and you wake up after nine hours of surgery with tubes and catheters and all kinds of things coming at it, and you realize that it's the first time in your life you've ever been in your body, like you are body, you are pure body, and that experience is so incredible. It was so incredible to be in my body, to not have this be an abstraction, Mm. you know? I've also thinking a lot lately about how you know, how Descartes has so much to answer for. This idea, I think, therefore I am, mm. you know, which sounds like a piece of philosophy, but our whole, our Western culture is so, so built, so built around this way overly cerebral, disembodied way that we've created all of our institutions and we're so impoverished. We're so much smaller for it. So much smaller. Yeah. You know, during, during, it's so funny that you're saying that because during my cancer, I used to just chant all the time, I feel, therefore I am, you know? And, and, and I'm, I'm in my body, therefore. I feel, therefore I am. Yeah, I feel, yeah. therefore I am. Yeah. I feel, therefore. I know, I, I can feel my existence. I feel my body. I feel the breath. I feel the living, breathing fiber that is humanness, you know? And I think this notion of objectivity, as if that were ever possible, Right. As if the brain could somehow separate you from your subjective self has has created a level of disassociation on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you can get yourself into some mindset which keeps you from from opening your heart. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with playwright and social activist Eve Ensler. I was at a gathering a couple of weeks ago, and there were neuroscientists there and artists, actually some poets, a poet from Sierra Leone and a poet mm. from northern Uganda, which some a lot of the themes mm. that you talk on were, speak about were there. But, um, and there were contemplatives. And we talked about, uh, again, to language, how, um, you know, the, the Buddhist word for it, it's, it's heart, heart, mind, it's heart and mind are the same thing. And when these Western neuroscientists first started studying um, the brains of meditating Tibetan Buddhist monks, 
the monks thought this was so hilarious that they were putting the um, the electrodes on, on the, the head, head. <laughs> as opposed to the heart. Yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> But actually, the science is actually also helping us understand that our brain is an organ, right? And that what we experience as feelings lodge in our bodies as well. And nothing separate. Again, everything got separated. Yeah. But they're not separate. There's a direct line that goes from and to. And I think, I think that is, to me, the most exciting thing about being alive right now is mm. rewiring ourselves and reconstituting ourselves to understand that this is all connected, not only here, but outside of us. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like that's the That's the time we're moving into now, like where we get out of this... You know, you can't dominate people without separating them from each other and from themselves. Mm -hmm. The more people get plugged back into their bodies, each other, the more impossible it will for us to be dominated and occupied. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the work right now. Um, and I don't mean that in a narcissistic way. I mean, like, how in our daily lives are we connecting in every single respect with ourselves and everything around us because that's where that's where transcendence comes from that's where mm -hmm. that's where real um energetic transformation comes from yeah that's such an interesting idea too i believe that also but it almost sounds paradoxical that transcendence comes from being rooted completely yeah um you had this moment, I mean, you had so many things happen with your cancer and infections and, I mean, it was a long saga. Um, Indeed. <laughs> is that a way to, um, but that you had this ther former therapist who was a friend who said to you at one point, uh, I was, she was so surprised you hadn't gotten sick up to then. Um, which kind of scared me because I, I sometimes think, am I making myself sick, you know? Mm. But you said, uh, my body has been sculpting this tumor for years. Mm. And so this kind of brings it back into you, but tell me how, tell me what you meant by that. Well, you know, I think ever since I got cancer, I've been really looking at trauma, like what is trauma? What are the molecular, you know, particle? What, what is it? What does it do to us? And I think even as I was very um, prone to sickness when I was younger, I was always sick. I was always sick. Because I was being beaten, I was being molested, I was yeah. being attacked. I was right. always under siege. So I was always sick. I, I, I saw myself as a sick person, you know? Because my body was absolutely metabolizing or, or, or attempting to metabolize all that trauma and was having a very difficult time with it. So it, it did what it did, which is it got me sick. And I think, I, I think we, we don't even know yet what the relationship between trauma and diseases and illnesses, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, I am surprised that, you know, all the years, first of all, my own abuse and then self-abuse and then traveling the world and listening to story upon story, city after city after city, woman after woman after woman who really needed to share her. And where was it going? You know, it was going into the system and how do we process it? And I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't treat my body with mercy because I didn't, I wasn't connected to my body. Right. So there's it, also that, just, you weren't making that connection. No. You weren't, you weren't imagining that connection as real. Exactly. So where was all that going and what it was doing? It was, it was building itself a little tumor. That's where it was going. It was just, and I've spoken to so many women recently who are working, for example, on the front lines at rape centers or in, in Pansy Hospital, for example. I heard a story recently of the women who are the intake people who intake the stories in the last, I think four years, three of them have gotten cancer. Mm. And mm. I've, I've just heard many stories recently, but then of course we don't even know the relationship between reproductive cancers, for example, and the number of women who have been beaten or raped or incested or abused. And since I wrote in the body of the world, I cannot tell you how many letters I have gotten from women telling me about themselves or their mothers who were survivors of battery, who got cancer. They could, they could directly see the relationship when the battery started, when the cancer happened. I think in years to come, we will, we will think of trauma and, and cancer, and they will, they will not be separate. Mm, mm. We will be treating them. Yeah, you know, I, I was always intrigued and, and kind of puzzled by this language. Or not puzzled, but I felt like it's something we don't pay attention to. When we talk about sexual violation in particular, 
we often will use the term soul-stealing, right? I mean, we have this evidence before us that when that kind of abuse happens, um, especially to a child, it's utterly destroying of the whole person. Mm-hmm. And it was never just a physical mm-hmm. experience. Never. You know, how many years is it taking me to piece by piece begin to reassemble the tissue of my soul, to reassemble the, oh, right. the you know, and... And I had resources to do that. I came from, you know, I came from a middle class family where I had the ability to begin to rebuild that structure. I look as I travel around the world at women who are living in such incredible poverty and in in, in situations where the, on top of the incredible meager existence they have, there is an avalanche of violence. So how are they even beginning to reconstitute those structures, you know? And then there was this bizarre uh, aspect of your cancer that it created essentially a fistula, which is a very particular, but unfortunately very widespread malady in that part of the world that had so captured you in the Congo. And Particularly for women who have been right as a as a result of rape and assault. And I mean that and it was I mean it it wasn't I mean it was the doctor at the Mayo Clinic was amazed. I mean you I don't know if he used this word or used this word in your book, mystery at the mystery of what they'd found. He said these findings are not medical, they're spiritual. I don't know. What was that like? That is I don't know. I was saying last night at at an evening we did that, you know, I think one of the amazing things about love, you know, is that if you allow people to enter you, they actually change you for better and worse. You know, if you allow pain into your system. But I also believe that you know, look, I, there's so many women's stories that have been inside me and so much pain that have been inside me. And it was w- what happened and got me sick, but it was also ironically what saved me mm-hmm. because it was part of a longer river. Like that river was a, a river of connection. And so living then to open City of Joy so that the women of Congo could have the place of their dreams was connected to me having gotten fistula, which was connected to, you know, it was part of the same continuum. You can listen again and share this conversation with Eve Ensler and subscribe to our podcast at onbeing.org. Coming up, Eve Ensler on living her second wind, but before that, on chemotherapy as ritual. She writes, A hard foreign object under the skin separates you from those who remain only flesh. It gives you secret powers and access to a new world, a world where there are no more countries or claimed borders, where life happens and death is near, where the only real harbors are the ones we carry in our chest. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, an easy-to-use online platform that helps design, build, and host your website. Building a website can be tough, even if you do know your way around coding. Creating something that looks good and works well is time-consuming. But Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites. That's one of the reasons we turn to them to build the website for our Civil Conversations project. Squarespace provides simple website templates for you to work with, and those templates are part of Squarespace's responsive design, which means your websites scale to look great on any device, further minimizing the hassles of making a website on your own. Squarespace gives you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website for only $8 a month. You can even get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. And when you sign up at squarespace.com, make sure to use the offer code ONBEING to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. 
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Vagina Monologues playwright, performer, and social activist Eve Ensler. We've been exploring how this woman who spoke the word vagina on stage realized she'd never inhabited her own body until she had cancer. I want to talk about a few other aspects of you know, what you learned go- going through that experience of your cancer. I-, I wonder if you would just tell the story of like beginning to see the tree mm. from your hospital room. Mm. Well, I think when I was younger and went through so much violence, I separated myself from all the things that represented life because life was too painful. Beauty, nature, love, children. None of those things felt possible to me. You know, I felt like I had been exiled from that world. And although I looked at it longingly from time to time, I also looked at it with bitterness and, and, and kind of this cynical, badass self, which was like, you know, I'm on my way to the city and I'll never see another tree again, you know. And, um, and I knew someplace it was really distorted and messed up. But that's where I was. And, I, and, I, and what happened when I got sick was I um, got very, very, I got a very, very bad infection after the surgery. And it was like a sea of infection in my gut. And I was really sick. And I lost 30 pounds. And I, I was just, I was disappearing. And, I, and I, I, I went to the hospital and I ended up having this lovely room because it was my birthday. And when I got there, I looked out and the only thing I could see was a, this really beautiful tree. And I, I couldn't write. I couldn't talk. I couldn't even watch television. I was just a thing. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to face this tree. And I'm going to go. But what happened was that every day, every hour, it was as if the tree began to reveal itself to me, you know, or I began to see the tree, or both those things happened together. And I fell in love with the tree. I loved the bark. I loved the trunk. I loved the branches. I <laughs> it, loved... It's like a contemplative practice was just that you entered into with the tree. Unbelievable. And by the end of my stay in the hospital, which was a few weeks, the tree actually blossomed. These white blossoms, and I felt like I, I felt like I was born. The, I was born back into nature somehow. You know, mm-hmm. like I had been asleep and I had awakened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's absolutely taken hold. You know. Um, there isn't a tree I walk past where I, I, you know, I feel like one of those people like, whoa, look really? at these trees. They're just <laughs> incredible. Like, I can't believe how amazing trees are. I, I want to read, um, I just want to read this passage because it's just so beautiful. Um, to this point, I mean, you being very eloquent about what you experienced, really what you, you know, these learnings, um, This is kind of long, but I'm going to read it because I think it's beautiful. What what if our lives were precious only up to a point? What if we held them loosely and understood that there were no guarantees? So that when you got sick, you weren't a stage, but in a process. And cancer, just like having your heart broken or getting a new job or going to school, were a teacher. What if, rather than being cast out and defined by some terminal category, you were identified as someone in the middle of a transformation that could deepen your soul Open your heart, and all the while, even if and particularly when you were dying, you would be supported by and be part of a community. And what if each of these things were what we are waiting for? It's so beautiful. Thank you. What if our lives were precious only up to a point? Mm -hmm. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, you know, I think this really began during 9-11 in this complete madness and obsession for security, which we all know is completely elusive and impossible. And I I think the way I I feel is I am important and I love being alive and it's great to be here, but I'm precious up to a point. I'm no more precious than anybody else. And my life has its time and its cycle and it will come and it will go, but my value isn't more than anybody on this planet. And I think in the West, and particularly in America, when bad things happen here, they're just so awful. But when they happen other places, they're anticipated or expected. We just assume things happen like that, as if the people aren't suffering the same as we're suffering when the bad things happen here. And I, you know, I remember once when I was in, um, I think I was in Kathmandu, and I was by a river, was it Kathmandu? I think it was Kathmandu. And um, there were these boys swimming in the river, and literally very close by, 
there was a pyre and they were burning a dead body and the ashes were floating and, and the boys were actually kind of, the ashes were kind of swimming <laughs> past the boys and hmm. nobody was alarmed. Nobody was disturbed. Dead and the living, the dead and the living. The, and it gave me this incredible sense of relief. It was like, yeah, the dead, the living, the dead, the living. It's not so awful. It, it, it just, and I think in a way, we in, the, in this country sometimes believe we're so important. Our comfort is so meaningful when it's no more meaningful or less meaningful than anybody else's comfort. And I think that understanding is very um, liberating. One of the big realizations that you came to um, was about the nature of love, and um, I and I, I really took that in because it's something I've been thinking about also a lot. I mean, maybe at this time of life, that in that extreme moment, the the loves that we tend to focus on, you know, love with a capital L, the romantic love, the marriages, the the lovers, um, that didn't really come through. That didn't feel very substantial and uh, and yet you you realize that this that, that that did not amount to you know the equation we would often make well you don't have love in your life that you were surrounded by love that you were held by love and that you'd had too small an imagination about that word that thing well I think I think this whole capitalist structure often forms our notion of love as if it were something you acquired do you know, or you got? Uh, you yeah, know? and we're also just so we're so inundated with totally the love story. Absolutely. The love story the is between two thing. people. Absolutely, I think our our notion of love is so based on a, a, a kind of um, I don't know. It just seems a very unevolved and very unenlightened yes. notion. You know that it, it's this one person who you will meet. The one, the one. Uh-huh. And by the way. I get to meet anybody. Yes, there are people who have good marriages that have lasted long, but I don't think you 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 will talk to anybody who will tell you this is the panacea and this is the only person who I've ever loved and that fulfilled all. Of course not. And I think I I just feel so excited now in my life because now that my notion of love that has been dispelled, that old notion is. And even though you think you've dispelled it, it still haunts you and right, lingers. Right. You know how do we how do we get rid of so much of that stuff? It's like it's in your cells. You just got to keep purging. But now I feel there is not a day that has passed since I recovered from cancer where I feel so joyful to be sitting here occupying the space with you to be in. The summer I had my friends and we were in Italy and we, we were dancing and we were swimming and we were talking and we were having amazing evenings. And every moment of that was so dear to me and precious. And I think we find our fulfillment where we choose to find our fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And if you're told you can only find it here and you don't look at where it is, which is your life, you keep thinking it's coming, you know? Right, right. You know? Oh, it'll be here one day. I'll get the big love. Well, you have the big love. Yeah. It's already here. Yeah, where did you, you <laughs> talked about um, the daily, subtle, simple gathering of kindnesses. And I mean, it was all, it was that love you felt. It was also the love you felt from those women in the Congo who were praying for you. Absolutely. Well, I think it was one of those things where I had one of those bad nights where I was thinking about all my past lovers and husbands and the failure of love in my life. <laughs> With and a how capital I, L. I just didn't get it and my own intimacy issues and blah, 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 blah. And then I suddenly realized, okay, how many beautiful people had shown up for me mm-hmm. who were cooking me eggs. Maurice Seal, who was cooking me eggs at five in the morning to, to settle my stomach when I was in chemo or my granddaughter who packed my bags when I went to see my mother for the last time or, you know, my sister who was there every minute on the couch with me putting washcloths on my forehead. And it was just this moment of like, oh my God, my life is so rich. And, and I think, again, it's like, there are the trees, there's the love. Everything's, the paradise is here. Paradise is right in front of us. We are so, I think, and I'm going to go back to capitalism because I think what it's engineered is longing. It is engineered longing and desire in us mm-hmm. for what can be in the future, you know? And so, because it's always about the next product, 
the next big right, thing. Right. You look at clothes and you always see some hot, sexy, fabulous couple <laughs> wearing those jeans. And you're like, oh, the jeans, <laughs> i.e. the love. Right. Like everything's, everything's yeah. all hooked in to the seduction. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And often, you're, you know, when you wake up and you're in a shaggy state with your lover, you don't actually look like that. But it's delicious, you know, in its own messy human way. And I think we're always comparing the messy human to that. And so whatever this is doesn't come up Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and a celebrity culture. Come on. The celebrity culture of the couples and the beauty and as if... Brad and Angelina. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We know exactly what that is. And that is not accidental. What if we actually were content with... Our lives. What if we actually knew this was paradise? Hmm. You know, hmm. it would be very hard to control us. Hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, while while you had your cancer, your mother also had struggled with cancer, and then she had a recurrence, right? And she died. And I feel like you said some very uh, stunning things about. Family. I mean, you learned you like your sister. Your relationship with your sister was so repaired through that experience of being sick. And but you talk about how you kind of compared the effect of cancer on your body to the effect of like your father's abuse. That when there's when there's that kind of disorder, that it creates mutations, just like cells mutate in your bodies. It creates mutations in relationships. I just I thought that was really interesting. I I wonder if you. Um, also, I mean, you were also really able to be there with your mother when she was dying, even though that had been a really hard relationship, and to let go of your resentments from all those years. I wonder if you feel like you would have been able to be present to her in that way if you hadn't gone through that experience of cancer and all mm. the things, mm. all the learning that you're describing that came with that. I'm not sure. You know, I think I had done a lot, had gotten closer. I was at a neutral place with my mother. I wasn't feeling bitter or hateful to her anymore. Um, But I'm not sure I was feeling all that much love either. I just was neutral. I would go to see her. I would be kind to her. Um, I think cancer made me so open and porous and vulnerable Mm -hmm. that I was able to really be with her. And and I wasn't just feeling love with her in those last moments. I had a lot of feelings. No, you were honest with her. Yeah. But you were honest in a way that, in fact, was, was very loving, right, in a really grown-up way. It felt that way. It felt that way. And I felt, and I felt when I left my mother that night, I felt like, okay, okay, this is done. And, and we're okay. Um, that, that's one level of that. But I think when somebody said to me last night who had read the book, um, when you don't get loved by your mother, it's a really hard road. And and I don't know that that ever goes away. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think, look, I do not feel a victim to it. I don't feel like, but I watch people with their babies sometimes. And I watch women who have had a relationship with their mothers where they felt connected, yeah. where they felt connected to her body, where they felt connected to her being. And that is an absence I will live with forever. It is not to say that, that the spirit doesn't fill it up or dance doesn't fill no, it up. No, or, I know. But it's just what is. You, 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 I think you get older and you come to terms with what, what you've been given. This is your story. This is what your thing is. This is, you make do, you know, and, and you make beauty out of it and you make art out of it and you make life out of it. Um, I remember once a friend of mine told me that he was interviewing a man who was 99, a great artist, and he was dying and had just a huge level of body of work and a huge achievement. And all he could talk about as he was dying was the fact that he never had a father. Hmm. And it really, it really struck me that at the core, 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 that, that relationship is, is like the fundamental yeah. beginning of any growth, any tree you know, how the tree will grow will be dependent on that. And, you know, and we become interesting trees as a result of it. Some of us grow that direction, right. you know. Right. But it's still there at the core. I'm Chris.
Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with playwright Eve Ensler on discovering her life through cancer, as described in her memoir, In the Body of the World. I mentioned I was at this event recently with poets from Sierra Leone and northern Uganda, and uh, in places like that, in moments like that, poetry and beauty take on this power and this centrality. I don't know. I wonder if uh, if we are evolving as a species, which I, I, I agree with you, and I think about that a lot, and I think I pick that up in my conversations, but if somehow there's something in there about us not needing to be in such crisis to find that power in ourselves... Well, the thing and is, sustain we, it without that. Absolutely, kind of crisis, the thing is, right? we are in crisis. So, in every you respect. mean all the time, anyway. Well, we're in crisis. The yeah. Earth is in crisis. Yeah, you know, yeah. humans are in crisis. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a huge percentage of people who are living in dire poverty on the planet. Yeah. So it would be great to think of us not being in crisis, but in fact, we are. But I would love to believe that when we evolve to the next place. We're not going to have to utilize crisis as the basis for transformation, right, right. but that love might be the basis or connection might be the basis. And, and I think, by the way, I don't feel now that I need things to be terrible in order to change. Mm-hmm. Like that is not mm-hmm. the modi- my modus operandi anymore. No, no. Yeah, you know? And yeah. I, I feel this in you that you can sustain, like those things that came to you in catharsis are now normalized. They're, they're part of... Well, what I long for now is is transformation. I think having gone through the cancer experience, like I get that there is nothing static. So what I want, all I want to do is go back to school. I want to learn more. I want to grow more. And honestly, I don't want it to be based on drama, you know, like and crisis and and horror. Um, I don't know what motivates people. I, I, I fear sometimes that that crisis thing is the driving point. You look at like a deadline, for example, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and and you're right. Of course you're right that there's that we are in all kinds of crisis as we speak, as we sit here, but there's crisis that you can ignore at least for a long time. Yeah. There's crisis that we are ignoring collectively. And then there are the, there are the times you get thrown into the hospital and yeah. cut open. Exactly. <laughs> when you get, oh my God, I'm in crisis and we're in crisis. Like the whole yeah. crisis world, the pit of crisis opens up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I guess the thing would be, I don't know, maybe that's about softening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And feeling held by each other so that we could be open to that pain. I think so. I absolutely think so. And I think play is a part of it and being with each other in gentle ways and being with each other in careful ways, you know? I think so often, um, in the same way that we don't see trees, we don't see each other. We don't see how traumatized people are, tender people are. I think sometimes if if one were fully awake, one would do nothing in one's day except for stop on the road on the people you meet because you would see their pain. Do you know? We walk past everyone. Sometimes it just crushes my heart. But you'd have to be able to bear that pain too, right? It's because we don't stop because we couldn't bear it. Right, but you would also understand that it's part of you already mm-hmm. so that when you stop to actually acknowledge it, you're actually allowing it to move as opposed to be frozen in you. You know, I was thinking while I was reading you, I'm... I'm always a little bit concerned about the language we use, especially about cancer, because, you know, in our lifetime, cancer has gone from being a death sentence to a chronic disease mm-hmm. that people survive. And But the language is so combative, right? It's fighting cancer. Absolutely. It's beating cancer. And I, I felt like, I mean, you definitely fought, but it was kind of like a hybrid um, so glad you're saying this. Right? I mean, there. so it was, it was both things. I don't feel like I fought cancer. No, and I don't... What, but it, I feel like I... You wrestled with it, I right? wrestled. I feel like I was in the, the, um, the churning of cancer. I feel like cancer took me and went, okay. 
Yeah, and you met it head on, right? You some days, uh-huh. some days I wasn't feeling like I wanted to go there. Some days, you know, some days I was brave. Some days I was, I stayed under the covers. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know that it's something you can fight. Do you know? I don't. Right, know. And I wonder if we if we hurt ourselves with that, those kinds of metaphors about illness, and just these moments where life. It's not what we thought it would be. When people would talk to me about you're going to beat this yeah. or you're going to you're going to slay cancer, or you're gonna, I, I would say what I'm going to do hopefully is become more of who I'm, I was meant to be. And cancer has given me this huge, dramatic, turbulent opportunity to do that. Um, I did not know at the end of this if I and I still don't know. You know, I'm three and a half years cancer free. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I, I feel fantastic that I've gotten this time and I feel very well and I feel unbelievable lucky to be alive. But I get that cancer afforded me this very extreme opportunity to both release things that needed to go, confront things that needed to be, and to really, you know, I think, I think when things get very, 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 very extreme, mm-hmm. you have an opportunity to go into the deepest parts of yourself, do you know, and, and really explore. Whether and, you want to or not. Whether you want to or not. You can, yeah. you can resist that. But you, the door is open. You can go there. So, you know, one of the things I, I've been talking a lot about is chemo. As, as a transformative experience. Yes, and, right. And that's where I feel like, I mean, there was some language of purging and battle. What was it? You uh, purging the badness that was projected on you, but never yours, right? That was somebody advising you about how to think about the chemo. Exactly. You know, if it becomes something where you're going to slay the cancer, it's oddly then about you and your success or failure. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to slay cancer. Don't have an idea how to do that. I wouldn't know how to do that. What I do know how to do and can try to do is begin to ride that wave that is pulsing through me and see if I can go where it's trying to take me. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Without And when the walls come up and I'm resisting it to say, okay, who's going to help me? How do I get help to get to the next place where mm-hmm. I need to go in my consciousness? That doesn't mean I'm going to live. You know, I, but I know if I had died... If I die today, I will be much happier than if I had died five mm-hmm. years ago. There's no doubt in my mind about it. I'll, I'll die okay today. It's okay. I would not have felt that had I died five years ago. There was just so much stuff I hadn't gotten to and gotten clean, gotten mm-hmm. rid of, you know? You, you, you use a lot of language and imagery of like ritual around chemotherapy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But- I'm big on ritual. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know that I've ever heard anybody talk about chemo that way. I think once Sue, you know, my ex-therapist, incredible friend, gave me this framework to say that, because I was terrified of, of chemo. But when she said to me, the chemo's not for you, it's for the cancer. Right. It's for all the rape, all the perpetrators, and you're going to poison them and they're never coming back. And I went... I want to go to, I couldn't wait to go to chemo. It was like, okay, every time they pump this poison into my body, you know, it will be the medicine. Because I always believed in that idea of turning poison into medicine. I always loved that phrase, you know, like, how do we turn poison into medicine? How do we turn, you know, it's very much part of of my Buddhist practice, you know, and had been for years. So the idea that I was having literal poison being pumped into me that could become medicine, um, it really became a ritual and I would literally go and I would sit as it came into me and I would visualize what I wanted to burn away and what I wanted to dissolve and what I wanted to be. And it worked. It really did work. I mean, that's not to say I don't have my own mishigas and I have my dark hours, which of course we do. We're human beings. But am I fraught? Is my daily existence fraught the way it used to be? Not at all. Hmm. Not at all. I'm happy now. I'm, I, I, I have a great happiness now in my life. And I didn't before. I was I was always battling, you know. Um, this notion of being people of the second wind is kind of how you you end the book, which really is what you're just pointing at. Talk about what that means to you. That 
I love the idea of a second wind. Yeah. I've always loved it, like that you, you're running and running and running and running and suddenly you get that next wind and you can keep going. And I've always been very curious what what lives in that space of second wind? Like what's in there? Like what part of us spiritually, physically, what's the, what are the ingredients of it? And what it feels like in the second wind, and if you think about a second wind, you don't do a lot of thinking about it. You know, the second mm. wind comes upon you. Mm. You know, you can't, you can't even think up a second wind, right? Well, it's, again, just to go back to where we start, it's a full body experience. It's, it's not so much a cerebral body. experience. And I feel to some degree that we're kind of in our second wind as humanity, mm. or could be. This could be our second wind, but it requires a radical reconjuring and reconceiving of the story. Like, what's the story? What are we doing here? And I absolutely believe it's possible. But enough people have to believe it's possible and be willing to kind of move with this wind that is trying, trying to come in, trying to pass through us right now. Eve Ensler's plays include The Good Body and The Vagina Monologues. Her memoir is In the Body of the World. You can listen again and share this episode at onbeing.org. You can also stream it on your phone through our iPhone and Android apps or on our fabulous new tablet app. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Nikki Oster, and Selena Carlson. Special thanks this week to the Nantucket Project, where I sat down with Eve Ensler. Thanks also to John Paul Lederach and the poets and others at the Art of Compassionate Presence Gathering at the Fetzer Institute. major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. Our corporate sponsor is Mutual of America. Since 1945, Americans have turned to Mutual of America to help plan for their retirement and meet their long-term financial objectives. Mutual of America is committed to providing quality products and services to help you build and preserve assets for a financially secure future. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.